Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Good morning. Our scripture passage this morning is Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nurturer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Ovid. Obed, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thank you all for leading us, worship team and Nancy. Uh, we are in Ruth this morning. We're actually going to finish up with Ruth, our study through Ruth. Uh, we're going back to Hebrews next week, and we're kind of, sort of, going to pick up right where we're leaving off in Ruth. You'll see what I mean between the two, but we're talking this morning. I promised you last week we'd come back to Jesus this morning, and we'll launch right into Christ and the, as, as the great high priest and his better priesthood as we get back into Hebrews next week. But I'm ahead of myself. This morning we get to finish Ruth. So uh, let's pray, and we'll jump right in here. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for... Uh, giving us your uh, kindness and mercy today. Uh, thank you for um, gathering us as the assembled people. We pray that you would uh, be kind uh, to us in specifically offering and specifically helping us understand the text. Uh, help us to uh, see Jesus in this text and what it means for us today and how this book points to him. And so we just ask now that the words of my mouth, the frail, feeble words of this, this uh, frail human being, uh, would be pleasing in your sights, and the meditations of all of our hearts would equally be pleasing. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen. The word redeem, <clears throat> redeem, it's, it's one of those words that means different things in different situations. For example, let's say you're running errands on a Saturday morning, and you have a big can, a big bag of pop cans uh, in the back of your car, in the trunk, or in the back of the truck, and, and uh, you had a party recently, and you got all these pop cans, and you, you want your money back on those deposits. And so you go down to the Redemption Center, and for every can you give the, the lady here in town, she gives you five cents back on every single one of those cans, because you paid your deposit. So you're going to redeem those cans. You're going to get your five cents back on every one. That, that's one way we use the word. 
Uh, or maybe you're doing some shopping, right? You're doing some online shopping, you need a new pair of running shoes, and you finally look through the 300 pairs of shoes this company offers, and, and you, you settle on a pair, you're going to buy them, they look good for what you need, you put them in the cart, uh, and then you remember, wait a minute, I got an email just yesterday. Just yesterday, I got an email from this company, and there was a discount, 20% off, if I would just type this code into the box when I, when I checked out on my next purchase. And so you go, you find the email, you grab the code, you paste it into the box. What do we say? You've redeemed that coupon. You know, the, the, the price changes 20% less because you redeemed that code. You redeemed that coupon. But it's not always money. You can redeem other things, too. Let's say you're watching a football game. It's that time of year almost. You're watching a football game. It's late in the fourth quarter. Uh, your team is up by two. It's wonderful. It's just a couple minutes left in this game. But then your quarterback throws a pick six. Right? He should have just kept it on the ground, but he throws a pick six. The quarterback grabs the ball, the cornerback, and he runs it all the way back for a touchdown. So now you're down by five. And there's like less than a minute left in the game. Oh, that quarterback, what was he thinking? But wait, here he comes. He's back out on the field. And, he, and he, it's like one of those wonderful things, right? It's why people bother to watch football. He, he takes his team all the way down the field. Less than a minute. Five seconds left. He throws the perfect spiral. It goes in. Touchdown. Your team wins, right? You win by one point or two points, whatever math I set it up there. What do they say afterwards? Some announcer is going to say, he really redeemed himself. Right, that quarterback, he made up for that boneheaded interception. He redeemed himself with that winning touchdown. That's another way we use the word. The Bible has its own take on redemption. In the Bible, to redeem something means to ransom it. You ransom it or you buy it back from someone else who's in some sense or another taken over, taken it over. So you, you, to redeem something is to buy it back or to ransom it back. Uh, you can do this with a piece of property, and that's actually been central to the story of Ruth. Uh, you can, you know, the piece of property can be redeemed by buying it back from someone else. Uh, you can also do it with a, a person, uh, and you actually will see this in Scripture sometimes. If, if a, a relative, for example, if a relative were to be sold into slavery or maybe even sell himself into slavery, <clears throat> you could collect enough money and you could come and redeem that relative. You could purchase that person's freedom. You could pay the cost. To, to buy that person back. That's the Bible's take on, on redemption. This morning, we're finishing our, our study in Ruth, like I said, and I want to finish by focusing on redemption, which has been this key theme in this book. We're going to talk about uh, redeeming something, and I want to connect it to, to loving kindness, which is something else we've talked a lot about. We've talked about God's loving kindness. I've just talked about this Hebrew word chesed, which means loving kindness or faithful love is another way we translated it. And that's also an important theme in this book. And you see all the different characters in the book showing loving kindness. And so Ruth shows loving kindness to Naomi and then later to Boaz. Boaz shows loving kindness to Ruth and to Naomi alongside of her. And really the big one is God. Every time we see one of these people do it, we're cognizant in the back of our minds that God is the one overarching who's showing loving kindness to all three of them, to Ruth, to Boaz, and to Naomi all along the way. And I want to join those two concepts this morning uh, and, and bring them, kind of tie them all together by talking ab about redemption in terms of it being the ultimate act of God's loving kindness. And that's really how we're supposed to think about it. The ultimate expression of the Lord's loving kindness is redemption. It's that he redeems us from our sins. Ultimately, he redeems us for himself. And so I want to talk about redemption 
using Ruth as our lens, using this little Old Testament book. And, and we're looking at Ruth specifically, but when I, I do a little book like this, I feel like we're, we're, we're also practicing how to read the Old Testament in general, right? So, so we, we read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, right? The, uh, even the most books where you're like, what does that got to do with, with the New Testament? We read it all through the lens of Jesus. And so we're, we're kind of practicing how to do that today. And, and so I want to ask three questions about redemption. And I want to ask, who does the Lord redeem? Who is redemption for? Uh, what does redemption do? And finally, who does it? Who, who is our redeemer? And I'm going to tell you the last one just right now, right here, because uh, there's no spoiler alert on this, the answer to this last question. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about it in a few minutes, but the last answer is Jesus. So if you want to skip ahead on your outlines and write in the last answer, the answer is Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the one who redeems us. This whole book points to him ultimately. But like I say, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. But first, let's answer those other questions. Uh, so, we'll, so we'll start with number one. Question number one, uh, who does the Lord redeem? Who does he redeem? And, and really what I'm, I'm, I'm asking here is, who are the objects of redemption? Uh, we're, we're not universalists. The Bible isn't universalist, uh, right? It, it, and not, it's not that all you got to do is have a heartbeat to be redeemed. That's, that's not what the tip, t- t- scriptures teach. So, so who does the Lord redeem? What types of people? What are the heart qualities, the attitudes that lead to redemption? And there are actually three answers. I think there were three answers we see in the little book of Ruth. So uh, let me tell you what they are. The first type, who does the Lord redeem? Well, he redeems the needy. So three types of people. He redeems the needy. The Lord redeems the needy. Uh, and we've, we've seen this with Ruth and, 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 uh, and Naomi. They're, they're, they are needy people. They have needs. Uh, and, and the author has... We, we, He's emphasized this all along the way. So the first time we meet Naomi, her need is presented to us. The first thing we learn about this woman is that she's the victim of a famine. She's the victim of a famine, right? So there's neediness right out of this. She wasn't the only one. Obviously, famines are big picture things. It was her whole region. But I, I think even before we learned her name, we learned she, uh, she was the victim of a famine. So there's neediness. Uh, we learn that she and Ruth both are widows, right? Both of them have lost their husbands. And so they've both been crushed with grief in their own lives. Uh, we also learn early on in the book that both women are childless. They are childless. And Naomi is childless because she had two sons and they both died. Both of her sons died in young adulthood. And so she's bereft of children. Ruth is also childless. Ruth has no children. Um, we're not sure why. It's either because her husband, Malon, had died before they were able to conceive children or else they just had not been able to at that point. But either way, whatever the reason, Ruth is also childless. So both of these women, uh, in a culture where having children is extraordinarily important for a woman, both of them are childless. And we talked about, along the way, we've talked about how that puts them both in difficult situations. Uh, in that culture, especially, a, a woman's security was directly connected and flowed out of uh, her relationship to the men in her life. And so for a woman like Naomi, a woman like Ruth, to have no husband and no sons means she's vulnerable. Really, that's the key. It's vulnerability. She's vulnerable to violence, which is kind of in the background of this story, but then she's especially vulnerable to poverty. And that's where we met these two women. They, they are poor. They're poor. When the book, oh, when, when uh, chapter two opens, uh, they get back to Bethlehem. And, and there does seem to be, I mean, we learn later in the book, Naomi owns technically some land, but nobody's been planting it. There's no crops in it. So, so they have this great need. They have no food to eat. And so Ruth goes out to glean. 
and gleaning, we talked about how that's the, um, this is kind of a recap sermon. We talked about how that, that, is a, that was the ancient world's uh, version of welfare, right? This was how they would take care of the poor, was this whole practice of gleaning, where you can go in somebody else's fields and you can collect food that's left over. And so to glean, the very act of gleaning is to say, I need help. I'm a needy person. I, I have a need here. And, and this is where, it's, it's, not the, it's certainly not the first thing, but it's one of the things we notice about Ruth. Early in the book, in the first half of the book, she says, hey, I'm not too proud to admit it. I have a need. I, and so, and, and the whole story is going to flow out of that, that readiness that she has to admit, I have a need. I'm going to go to somebody else's field. And then the Lord leads her in his sovereignty to the field of Boaz. That's what all kicks it all off. That, that's what kicks it off. That's where her redemption starts. It's Ruth admitting her need. And you know what? That's where it starts for us too. She's a picture. She's a picture for us here. Our own redemption starts with, with you and me admitting our own spiritual neediness. No matter how uh, you know, strong we may be in, in the physical world, how wealthy we may be, how intelligent we may be, whatever, all that stuff, we all, every one of us, are, are, we begin from a, a position of spiritual neediness. And that's especially in the scriptures, just to cut to the chase, that's first and foremost going to mean admitting our own sinfulness, which is always a hard one for us to admit. But, but acknowledging what the scriptures say about us, that yes, I am a sinner in desperate need of God's mercy and grace, that's essential. That's an essential thing. It was essential for Ruth and, and Naomi and their redemption in this story, but more importantly for us, that is essential for us in terms of, of uh, being forgiven of our sins, of, of entering into what Christ offers us. A, a person, if you, if you look at the New Testament, a person, we'll come back to this in a moment, a person cannot be redeemed until he or she is ready to admit, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need you. So who does the Lord redeem? He redeems the needy. He redeems those who are ready to humble themselves and say, Lord, I need you. The second type of uh, people we see in this little book that the Lord redeems are the outsiders. The outsiders. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to announce is not an insiders-only club. On the contrary, the Lord wants all kinds of people to be saved. As the Gospels will say it, from every tribe and every nation and every tongue, he wants all kinds of people to be saved. And that's another lesson we've talked about. It's another lesson we've seen here in Ruth. And we especially have seen it in the emphasis in the book on the outsider status, the outsider status of Ruth. We were introduced to her in chapter 1, from, again, from the opening couple of verses. Uh, Ruth is a Moabite. She's a Moabite, which doesn't mean a whole lot to you and me, but to the Jewish readers of that book, uh, it, it, she's, she's a foreigner. And not just not a friendly foreigner. Generally speaking, there was a lot of historical tension in, uh, between. There's kind of in the period this book takes place, it's kind of an uneasy truce sort of a thing. Uh, they weren't actively at war, but but historically, these were two people that were not friendly to each other. She, the, the main one of the three main characters of the book is a foreigner. Uh, when they get to and and the book keeps emphasizing this. I don't know how much I need to go over these again, but you know, chapter two, verse two, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi. Why do you got to say that? Well, because they want us to remember that she's an outsider. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, chapter 2, verse 6, uh, Boaz comes and says, who's that young woman? The foreman says, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
You got a little double Moab there, right? He doesn't want Boaz to miss it. She's the Moabite from Moab, really emphasizing her foreigner status. Makes you wonder if that, uh, if, if that foreman wanted Boaz to give her the boot. You know, oh, get out of here, you Moab, I'm, I'm Moabite. I wonder if, I don't know, I'm reading too much in maybe. But, but he emphasizes twice that she's an outsider. We get to chapter 4. Actually, she says it herself. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Why have I found favor? This is Ruth talking to Boaz. Why have I found favor with you, even though I'm an outsider? even though I'm a foreigner, she says. We jump ahead to chapter 4. We looked at it last week. Boaz goes to present his case for why, uh, to, to the other kinsmen, the guy who's ahead of him in line, and, and he emphasizes that she's a Moabite. And again, we talked a little bit about how maybe he's trying to make sure the guy says no because he maybe doesn't want a Moabite, right? He doesn't want a Moabite wife, and so he ends up saying, no, I don't want the land. I don't want the, if the land comes with a, the woman, I don't want the land because I don't want the woman. That's really what the guy ends up saying. And so Boaz, maybe Boaz is kind of playing his cards right here. He's, he wants to marry Ruth, and so he emphasizes it. But the effect for you and me as readers is to remind us again, even as she's about to become Boaz's wife, it reminds us again, she doesn't belong here. She's an outsider. She's not Jewish. But then, then in the last quarter of the book, or the last, you know, the last part, Nancy read for us before, we get to the end of the story and her foreigner status disappears. It's been hammered away all through the book, and then it's never mentioned again. She's not Ruth the Moabite anymore. Now she's just Ruth. Ruth married to Boaz. Ruth, daughter-in-law to Naomi. She's not Ruth Ruth the Moabite anymore. And what that does for you and me is it shows us that here at the end of the book, Ruth has been welcomed and incorporated into the community of God. She's become part of God's covenant people, which is an amazing thing scripturally. We talk about God's heart for the outsiders. This is beautiful. Uh, back in Deuteronomy, I can't remember, I think early in this series, I think somebody reminded me of this verse. Uh, back in, in, in Deuteronomy 23, Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Lord, uh, one of the many laws in Deuteronomy is that no Moabite, they're specifically stated, stated, no Moabite is to enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation, it says. No Moabites get to come in. But here we learn something. Okay, so is Ruth disobeying that? Uh-uh. What Ruth does is it teaches us something. It teaches us that not all Moabites are Moabites. It's just like what Paul says in Romans. Romans Paul says it in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. He says, you know, not all people who are descended from Israel are Israelites. Not all Israel is Israel, he says. What makes you Israel then? It's faith. It's the whole case Paul's making in Romans 9, and a lot of Romans. The book of Ruth actually makes the same case here. Right? The true Israel, the true people of God are all those who live by faith regardless of their ethnicity or social status or race or whatever else. Same thing's true here. So what does Ruth tell us? Ruth tells us that the Lord never meant to exclude foreigners, or let's just call it Gentiles, especially because that's so important to you and me. The Lord never meant to exclude Gentiles from his people. What he was excluding was the Gentile way of life. What, is, what he was excluding was the idolatry the immorality, the disobedience to the will of God. That's the problem. It's not what race you are or what color you are. That's not the problem. The problem is what do you do with, with the will of God? What do you do with God? Which is why it's so significant what Ruth says to Naomi way back in chapter one. What does she tell her? When you know, Naomi says, go home, and, and Ruth says, no, I'm staying with you. Your God will be my God. 
Your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. She's, she's turning away from all of that. That's why God welcomes her into the covenant community. She, leaves, she may still have Moabite blood in her veins, but she's a Jew. She's a person of God in her heart, which is where God is looking at. And that same principle still carries today. God's heart still burns with love for all of us outsiders. Right? He wants his gospel, his good news, to go forth to the very ends of the earth. Uh, we think about the, the Great Commission. You know, some, some believers, I think you guys know better in our church, but, but you know, some Christians think that Great Commission is, is purely a New Testament concept. Like it comes out of the blue with the ministry of Jesus. You know, Jesus, end of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, we call it the, the Great Commission. Jesus stands there on the hill and he says, go into all the world and make the disciples. And, and, and some, some Christians think the angels are like, whoa, what? You know, the angels are in heaven going, what did he just say? Did he say the whole world? Wait a minute, what? That's not it at all. The angels are just nodding their heads. They're like, yep, that's how God's always been. That's what he always does. He always wants to keep spreading this thing to as many people as are out there. And, and so that's what we, we see. We, we see it here in Ruth. The Great Commission doesn't start in Matthew 28. The Great Commission starts all the way back, all the way back. And so that's a, a lesson. We haven't talked a lot about it, but we, we actually talked a lot about missions in July with different mission speakers we had. But, but, but it's, it's, it's in this book. Stay faithful to the mission. Stay faithful. Yes, Jesus calls us to take the good news to the ends of the earth. And we're all called to be part of that mission. And, and you know the routine. We, some of us go, some of us, we, all of us give, all of us pray. Right? And, and, and that, but we're all called to be part of his global mission. But then it's not just global. It's also what we had a team from the, from the church doing yesterday at Atlantic Fest. It's local too. Right? It's reaching out to, to, to people here at home. And, and, and especially, and I, the Lord's heart especially does burn for those uh, us outsider types. And so he calls us to reach not just those who are like us, but those who maybe are unlike us. The immigrants, the poor, the disabled, the elderly, the, the homeless, those battling with addictions, wh whoever is on the fringes of our own world, those are the people that the Lord longs to redeem. He longs to redeem them to himself. It's a key lesson here in Ruth. And then the third type of people the Lord redeems are the repentant. And these aren't uh, ors. These are, these are cumulative. I think all three of these are required. Uh, the repentance. The Lord redeems those who repent of their sins and return to him. Now, there's not a lot about repentance uh, here in Ruth, especially repentance from sin. It's not a heavily emphasized theme like it is, say, in you know, some of the prophets. Uh, although you do have what I just talked about. You have Ruth leaving her Moabite life behind. So all that that meant, I mean, the Moabites worshipped Chemosh. Chemosh was the god, uh, I forget what Chemosh actually was the god of, but the way to worship Chemosh was to take your babies and burn them. And that was the Moabite god. Ruth leaving all of that behind. And so Ruth, it's, it's not emphasized, but it's there in the first chapter. She repents from sin. But let me tell you where you really see repentance. Repentance is a theological concept in Ruth. You see it in the repetition of a, of a key word. Uh, this is, Ruth is literature, right? And, and, and these sorts of things are done on purpose. It's Holy Spirit-inspired literature, but it's literature. And there's a key word, and it's especially in chapter 1, it's the word return. Return. In chapter 1, we're told that Naomi heard, so after everybody's died, her sons are dead, her husband's dead, she hears the Lord's provided bread back in Bethlehem. When she heard the good news, she decided to return. 
She returned to Bethlehem. That's chapter 1, verse 6. And here's the thing that gets lost in most of our English translations. The word return is then repeated 10 more times. 10 more times just in chapter 1. There's some more occurrences later in the book, but chapter 1 is where it really pops. 10 times, so 11 times in one chapter, return, return, return. Let me tell you why that matters. Um, in Hebrew, if you want to talk about going back to a place physically, if you want to talk about returning to a, going back to a location, you have three different words you could use, and they're all equally good words in the Hebrew language that you could use. Only one of them is also used to talk about repenting from sin. And that's the one our author uses again and 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 again, count up to 11. He uses that word. He could have used the other one, so it's word choice. But what is he doing? He's subtly emphasizing the return to Bethlehem is a physical return, but it's also a spiritual return. I didn't spend much time with it because it's debated, but the whole question of should they have ever gone in the first place kind of hangs over the whole book. Right? And so some, some Bible teachers will tell you Elimelech sinned when he took his family from Bethlehem to Moab. Others would say, well, what are you going to do? It was a famine, right? And they would point to Abraham. Abraham took Sarah down to Egypt, and, and we don't usually say that he sinned going to Egypt. So, so it, it, it's, the book never really resolves it for us, but it kind of hangs over us all the way through. Right? Should they have ever gone to Moab in the first place? Well, whether they should have or they shouldn't have, Naomi leads Really, it's just Ruth at this point. She's the only one who's left with her. But Naomi leads the, what's left of the family in repentance. She leads them in a return back to where they belong. She goes back. She returns to Bethlehem. She repents to Bethlehem. And so her redemption, all the good that God's going to bring into her life in the rest of the book, it all starts with her, her, her returning, her repenting. Boy, is that a principle for us. That's true for us too. Our own redemption and all the good things the Lord wants to do in us and through us, it's directly connected to our repentance. It's all connected to repentance. Saving faith is always accompanied by repentance from sin. It's always, they, they, they go together. They go together. You see it in the writings of Paul. Um, actually, Acts is the writings of Luke, technically. But, but Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we, the modern church, we forget that part. We're just like, you have to turn to Jesus in faith. Well, the scriptures say you have to turn in repentance in faith to Jesus. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. So who does the Lord redeem? The Lord redeems the repentant. Repentant. He redeems those who are willing to, to leave it behind. And yeah, we're going to struggle in the whole Romans 7 and the battle with sin then becomes a battle for the rest of our lives. But there's that fundamental, I'm not living that way anymore. That's not me. I'm going this way with Jesus. And so who does the Lord redeem? The Lord redeems the repentant. That's question one. Uh, and now let's look at question number two. So the second question we want to ask about redemption is, what does it do? What does it do? So why should we repent and you know, admit our neediness and all the rest? What, what are the results? What does redemption do for us? And to answer this question, I'm going to answer it just in the context of Ruth, so it's bigger. We could talk for a long time about this. But I want to point out uh, two giant benefits, two great big benefits that re of redemption that we see specifically here in Ruth and really where we see him is, is chapter 4. So now I want to hone in that most of this so far has been kind of 
the whole book. But now let me, let me zero in on today's text as we finish up the book because we see both of these two big, big benefits in chapter 4. So big benefit number one is that the Lord restores our life. That's what redemption is. He restores our life. He restores it. He restores us. Uh, it says so in verse 15. So in, in verse 14, uh, the women of Bethlehem, so you know, we, get, we read 13 and we get the, they married and, and they're going to, you know, they're husband and wife now, verse, and a baby's born. Uh, in verse 14, the women of Bethlehem make a declaration. They say that the Lord has provided something. He's provided a redeemer. <laughs> He's provided a redeemer for Naomi. So put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that redeemer. Uh, in verse 12, the women then say what this redeemer is going to do. This Redeemer is going to restore Naomi's life. They specifically say it. He shall be to you a restorer of life, it says. And that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen that in the story as it's unfolded. There have actually been, if we think back over what's happened, there's been a series of reversals in which Naomi's life has been restored to her. Think about it. Uh, The story begins in a foreign land. It ends in the promised land. Naomi's story started with death, but it ends with birth. It starts with emptiness. I've come back empty, she said. It ends with fullness. It starts with famine. It ends with a harvest. It starts with bitterness. Remember that whole thing? Don't don't call me Naomi anymore. That means pleasant. You call me Mara. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. So so call me Mara. So she starts, uh, but but by the end, she's she's Naomi again. So it starts with bitterness. She's a bitter, hurt woman when we meet her. Now she's pleasant again. She's got this baby in her lap. She's going to care for him. That's when it says she became his nurse. She she basically became like a nanny to her own grandson and got to, to help raise him. On nearly every front, on nearly every front, the Lord has restored her life. Naomi's life is restored. And he does it. How did he do it? He did it, the text says, specifically through her Redeemer. It was through her Redeemer. Uh, Verse 15, this Redeemer shall be to you a restorer of life. And that's that's such a beautiful picture of what he does for us. The Lord does the same thing for us. He restores our lives. When we put our faith and we turn from our sins, put our faith in Jesus Christ, he, he redeems us. He restores our lives. He does this spiritually. It's a spiritual restoration, right? I mean, all these fancy words we use for New Testament doctrines, regeneration, being born again, justification, uh, forgiveness of sins, sanctification, that lifelong process of growing in godliness, uh, that all of it together is part of this restoration that we're talking about. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe, we were dead in our sins before. He says in a bunch of places. We were dead in our sins before. Now we're alive. We were dead. Now we're alive in Christ. What's the idea? We've, our lives have been restored. We've been brought to life spiritually. So there's that spiritual restoration we talk about. But then the Lord remembers we're dust. He remembers we're flesh. He made us this way. And, and, and so he also restores our circumstances. He has this way of putting our lives back together again from all the messes we've made of them. And that's, that's part of our redemption too. Now, that doesn't mean we get back everything we lost. We don't always get back everything we lost. Everyone's, you know, you will hear stories like that sometimes, but it's not always the case. In fact, I don't know that it's often the case. It certainly wasn't for Naomi, right? I mean, there, there's, it, 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 it's, not a, you know, every, it's, it's not a fairy tale ending. Her husband's still dead. Her children are still dead. So, so the Lord doesn't just put everything back the way it was before. There's a, there's a, a gritty reality to it even. But what does he do? He, he does bring new life. 
He does bring new things. He, he puts broken pieces back together again. He takes the, you know, you think of those awful wildfires in Hawaii, all those burned over places. He takes those burned over places and he brings, he brings newness. He brings freshness. He brings new life where there's been destruction. And so that's this picture. That's, that's restoration. So that's a big benefit. In the text here in Ruth, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of Naomi's redemption. He, she's, by, by the end of the book, she's sitting there with a baby in her lap. A, a, a grandson that she thought she'd never, ever get to have. That brings us to the other benefit of, of redemption. And the other benefit is that the Lord gives us peace. Right? She's kind of looking at Naomi as the book ends. It's such a beautiful picture of how the Lord gives us peace. Because as we look at Naomi, her, her, her life, and especially her attitude and her inner person, has been transformed. There's a complete transformation from, from what we've met and from what we met earlier on. And I already highlighted some of it, right? I mean, when we first met her, her future was uncertain, insecure for all the reasons we talked about. And, and in that insecurity, there's bitterness and hurt. By the end of the book, she has this redeemer. What's this redeemer going to do for her? He's going to uh, restore her life. We talked about that one. He's also going to nourish her in her old age. That's how the ESV puts it anyway in verse 15. He's going to take care of her. And so she was insecure. She was bereft. Now she has a nourisher. She has a provider who's going to take care of her. And so she had no hope. Now she has hope. But do you know where you really see her peace? So that's kind of circumstantial peace. She has this grandchild now. But do you know where she really sees, the, the, where you see the peace? Is in her silence. Naomi is silent at the end of the book. All through, up until now, especially in the first half of the book, especially chapters one and two, Naomi has had a lot to say. Did you notice? You thought we would talk more about Ruth. I did too. Uh, It's it's all Naomi. In fact, if this were a stage play, her her book with her lines would be way thicker than Ruth's. She has way more lines than, than Ruth has. She has a lot to say. But when we get to chapter four, she says nothing. She's got nothing to say. She doesn't speak even once. It would have been very natural in telling the story to have her go, yay, look at me, I'm pleasant now. No, <laughs> no, she has nothing to say. And I think this is a positive thing. It's not a negative thing, you know, look, she, you know it's like she's being silenced. It's that she is at peace. It's a positive picture of a woman resting in the peace of the Lord. And so she's gone from pain and sorrow and bitterness, chapter one, now she's quiet at rest at peace. I remember saying uh, in an earlier sermon that you would, I think it was at the end of chapter one or maybe beginning of chapter two, I I said that you would not let Naomi teach your children's Sunday school class. (laughs) Do you remember how angry she was, how bitter, right? Don't let her near those kids. Goodness gracious. I don't know if she'll, you know, no, don't do it. Now you would. Now, absolutely. Now you would be glad to have this woman teaching your children's Sunday school class. And, And the difference What's made the difference? The difference is her redemption. She's been redeemed. Her redeemer, uh, she's been redeemed, and her redeemer has brought her peace. And, you know, our redeemer does the same thing for us. Our redeemer does the same thing for us, this big giant benefit. Actually, I want to switch now, uh, shift to question number three. Who are we talking about? (laughs) Who is it? Who does the redeeming? And the answer, like I said before, is Jesus. The Lord Jesus is our redeemer. But here's the thing. I'm not just saying that because of the New Testament. I'm saying it because of the last 10 verses in the book of Ruth. That, so he's everywhere. Jesus is everywhere. This is a book about Jesus. This is his book. Uh, let me tell you about a surprise twist. 
there's a surprise twist that takes part, place in the last part of chapter 4. So, uh, so we got uh, verse 13, Boaz, you know, the, the whole thing is settled from the previous thing with the kinsman redeemer. And, and so they get married. And the guy renounces his right. Boaz is next in line. Now if we go to the altar, Ruth and Boaz get married. Ruth conceives a child. Nine months later, a baby is born. It's a boy. And they name him Obed. At this point in the story, you look at your text, it's verse 14. At this point, we hear from a group of people that we have not heard from since chapter 1. We actually heard from this same group of people at the end of chapter 1. It was the women of Bethlehem. And I don't, I don't know if anybody's ever had the chance to kind of study ancient Greek literature, but these women, they're kind of like, and I'm not saying there's influence here, but they're a little bit like a Greek chorus. Right? The ancient Greeks, when they would write plays, when they wanted to advance the plot, they would have a group of women come out onto the stage and they would sing kind of narrative stuff that nobody else had access to. And then they would go off again. Uh, and, and these women functioned that way a little bit because they tell us things that we wouldn't naturally conclude if we were just left to our own devices. And so what do they tell us? So they, 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 uh, they, these women come out and they are celebrating with Naomi. So they are celebrating, but their celebration is all that way. It's all directed to God. And that's what they say. Blessed be the Lord. He has provided a redeemer for Naomi. All right, so they don't come and ooh and awe over the baby and his cute little toes, although maybe they did that. But, but, it's, but really what they, what's reported is, blessed be the Lord, for he has provided a redeemer for Naomi. But who are they talking about? When this, this chorus comes out to tell us about a redeemer, who are they talking about? Well, our first thought is Boaz. I mean, obviously, it's Boaz, right? The whole book's been about how Boaz redeems them. He redeems Ruth, and redeeming Ruth, he redeems the land, and he redeems uh, Naomi, right? And, 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 and so our first thought is it must be talking about Boaz. Except a careful reading, I think, actually points us in the direction of someone else. Uh, verse 14, he has, he has not left you without a redeemer. He's provided you a redeemer. Uh, let's see, may his name... I'll just read the whole verse. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name, whose name? The redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He, the redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life. We talked about that. And a nourisher in your old age. So, so far, all of that could apply to Boaz. Boaz has done all that. He's, gonna, he's taken care of the land, baby, father to the dad. All, the, all of that could apply to Boaz, but not the next part. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The Redeemer. If you map it out grammatically, which is what I do in the weeks when I have time, you, you, just, you, you trace it. Who's the, him, 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 him. Wait a minute, him? That doesn't fit. Wait a minute, she, she didn't give birth to Boaz. Boaz is her husband, not her son. But he gave birth to the Redeemer, the women tell us. So, so you say, so, so what does that make us conclude? It makes us conclude they're talking about Obed. Obed's the redeemer. Okay, why does that matter? What do you, what's, what's the point here? Why does that matter? Well, the reason it matters is that technically it's not accurate. Right? There should be a little bit of dissonance in our heads at this point as readers. We should be going like, well, but, 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 but Boaz is the redeemer. Technically, Boaz is the redeemer. But you know what? The Lord's not speaking technically anymore. When we get to this point in, in Ruth, the Holy Spirit through probably Samuel, but who knows, we don't know for sure who wrote it, but the Lord is speaking at this point prophetically. And if you interpret the statement of the women prophetically, they're right on. That's 100% true, because it's the child. 
The child born to Ruth and Boaz is the Redeemer. In what sense? Well, in the sense that God's going to bring redemption, not just for a couple of people in one family, he's going to bring redemption for his people through that child. We just went big at this point. He's bringing redemption through the child. And that's why the book ends with actually not one, but two genealogies, right? So we have these two genealogies at the end of the book, which is an odd way to end the book, you'd think. Uh, And so you, you get these two genealogies. Why? What the genealogies tell us is that this is not a story about Ruth and Boaz anymore. This is a story about the child who will descend from Ruth and Boaz. And so we have two genealogies genealogies at the end. Uh, The first is real short. It's in verse 17. And the first one just draws a straight line. Obed, Jesse, David. Right? So it just shows a straight line from Obed uh, to, to, to David, King David, which if you just kind of do it real quick, King David was the great grandson of Ruth and Boaz, right? Ruth and Boaz, their great-grandson. We have some great-grandparents in this room, right? Some of you have had the privilege of holding, holding babies, uh, those babies. That, we don't, I couldn't begin to tell you if it ever happened, but Ruth may well have held baby David. We don't know. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But that would be the connection. She was his great, and Boaz was his great-grandmother, great-grandfather. And that's a big deal because David is a redeemer. Right, so I don't want to rush past David. To, to the Israelite nation, David is a redeemer. He's a redeemer king because he's the one who finally brings an end to that 400 years of oppression at the hands of the Philistines. David's the one who ends it with the Philistines, conquers them, and establishes the kingdom. So David, David is a redeemer. Right, so David's a redeemer. That's what you get with verse 17. That's the short genealogy. But then you get the longer one. That one runs from verse 18 to the end of the book. Uh, That one also ends with David, but it goes further back to a guy named Perez. Perez. That one's important. Who's Perez? So uh, uh, you you got Israel, Jacob, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. He had 12 sons. They became the 12 sons of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 sons was named Judah. Judah had a son named Perez. And he had some other sons, but they weren't such good guys, and they end up getting uh, condemned for their sin. Perez is the one through, through whom Judah's line is going to continue. And so we go back to Perez. Why? So that we can go back to Judah. That's why the author does this. And according to Genesis 49, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you can look it up. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, it was one of Jacob's promises. It was Jacob's promise to his son Judah. Someday the Messiah... This is how the Jewish people understood this text. Someday the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. The Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. And that's, what worked. that's why the connection back to Perez, the son of Judah. We know now here at the end of Ruth, this story is way bigger than Boaz. This is way bigger than Obed. This is even bigger than David. Because it isn't about any of those men. It's about a child who would someday be born in the line of Perez in the line of Judah, a child whose birth the whole world would celebrate, a child named Jesus. And so we ask the book of Ruth, who's the Redeemer? They had to wait a thousand years for the answer, but the answer is the Redeemer is Jesus. He's the one who fulfills this book. So you say, why did God go through all these? Why is this little story? Surely other kinds of things must have happened, you know, cool stories of provision. I mean, this is a beautiful one, but why? Why? Well, because this one's about Jesus. This one is, shows us his, his setup, what he was going to do. And so it all points to our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one who redeems us 
from our sins. He's the one who restores our life. He's the one who does all these wonderful things we've talked about. We go back to Hebrews next week, and we'll pick it up. And it's a lot more technical in Hebrews because it talks about the priesthood. But if, if you find yourself, if your eyes go a little foggy in some of the weeks when we're in Hebrews, and I'll do myself the same thing, uh, just go back to this story and remember our Redeemer. Remember how wonderfully he's provided for us. Would you pray for me? Pray with me, please. You pray for me too, but let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the time to get to spend this summer hovering over this book and studying uh, together from some of the different angles, some of the different things we've learned. Uh, there's lots of good stuff in here, Lord. Some of it just kind of very practical, how to live our lives and how to defend our integrity and how to interact with each other as men and women. Lots of stuff in this book. Uh, lots about your sovereignty, lots about your provision and care. But uh, as we come away from it now, help us, uh, help us land here to, to know and remember that it's all about Jesus. The reason this 3,000-year-old story matters most of all is because it's through, it's through these kinds of things. It's through this that you, you brought him forth. And so we pray for ourselves, each and every one of us, whether it's college students going back to school or teachers getting ready or students or parents or just all of us, all the different places we're at uh, right now today as we go back about our stuff this week. Help us to keep our eyes on him, trusting in you, God, and trusting in Jesus, empowered by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.